Take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 11. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 26. And while you're turning there, let me just say I'm deeply indebted to Derek Thomas for many of his insights in this passage today. Uh, Mark 11, uh, beginning with verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the, the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Uh, you may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father... Again, we bow in your presence. And this is always the case. We are in need of your word. We are by nature like lost and erring sheep. And we need the direction and the comfort of the scriptures to guide us. To rebuke us, Lord, even. To instruct us. To, to furnish us with knowledge of your will and of your purpose for us. But God, we also need the work of your Holy Spirit, for without him we are able to do nothing. Oh Lord, we thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, we're continuing on in our, our study of Mark and we're in the last week of Jesus' life. And uh, we looked at the triumphal entry last week, as that was a Sunday, and now it's uh, Monday. And uh, as, as we look at this, we've seen Jesus as king. And as we've said, the series title is The King's Cross. The first half of Mark sort of talks about Christ as king. Uh, the second half talks about him as the king who moves to the cross. And throughout this, Jesus is always completely in control. And yet, one definite aspect of Mark's gospel is this emphasis on the Lord Jesus Christ as the servant king. Uh, if you remember the words from Mark 10, 45, for the, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
But we must not mistake in Christ's meekness and his lowliness is weakness. Okay, brothers and sisters, we, we especially need to take that to heart in our own lives as we think about Jesus Christ who rules over his church, who rules over the lives of his people, that Jesus Christ is not a weak king. Amen? He is a powerful king. Uh, it's, it's probably a lot, this is any illustration is imperfect, but it sort of reminds me of a, a mighty general who serves his king. And he serves his king very meekly, very humbly, while at the same time, he is a very powerful ruler who is feared on the battlefield by his enemies. That's what Jesus is like. Just because he's humble to do the will of his father does not mean that he is weak. And so Jesus comes meekly and humbly, but never weakly. Uh, in the remaining events, as we look at chapter 11, what we're going to see is that Mark presses upon us that Christ is not a weak king who turns a blind eye to wickedness. But as he comes in as the glorious king, that he comes in, first of all, to deal with his church, to deal with the, the nation of Israel. And he sovereignly rules over them to deal with their waywardness and their disobedience and their faithlessness. And he does so as a king who has teeth. A king who can back up what he says. And so we're going to look at uh, several uh, scenarios this morning. First of all, the fig tree in, in verses 12 through 14, which really takes place on a Monday morning. And then Jesus goes on into the temple on, uh, in verses 15 through 19 and has the cleansing of the temple. But then again, on the next morning, on Tuesday morning, then Christ then addresses the tree again, which helps us to see in this structure that the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple are, are tied together. They're ideas that are tied together. And so I want us to look at those this morning. First of all, the cursing of the fig tree in verses 12 through 14. Uh, the text tells us that Jesus is hungry. He's making the two-mile trip from Bethany to, to Jerusalem, and he sees a fig tree in the distance, and, and it's really, the text tells us, it's really too early in the year for figs. You know, this is springtime, probably March, April, and figs don't come till I think it's August or September. So it's a little early, but the tree has leaves on it. And one of the things about fig trees, and I've learned a lot more about fig trees this week than I ever knew about fig trees, but from what I understand, that fig trees, when they have leaves on them, that's a sign that there's fruit. And so even though it was early for figs, there would have been some kind of fruit just by looking at the leaves. And so when Jesus sees the leaves, he expects that there should be fruit. But the reality is, there is none. And so Jesus, seeing this fig tree as uh, really just a perfect illustration of the condition of Israel's uh, heart, that they are full of leaves, full of religious works, which would suggest that there would be spiritual fruit. But the reality is, there was none. And so he uses this fig tree as sort of an object lesson for where his people are. Now, it's, it's interesting that he uses the fig tree not just because it, it fits so well what the scenario is, but if you look at the Old Testament, God oftentimes speaks of his people as the vine, or he'll talk about them as a fig tree, uh, especially as uh, he's speaking through his prophets, through Isaiah, through Hosea, through others. He uses this imagery of a fig tree. And what an appropriate imagery as Israel is just like this fig tree. It's sprouting leaves of good works 
but bearing no fruit of repentance before the Lord. It's the reality of saying one thing and yet doing another thing. Uh, it's that idea of hypocrisy that, uh, that Jesus sees even in his people. It reminds me of a story I heard about Billy Graham, and he was on board an airplane, and there was this man on the airplane who was being rather difficult and unruly, uh, because, as, it, as the way the story was told to me, because they thought he was drunk. And so the, the stewardess, the, the flight attendant, was telling this man in no uncertain terms that he needed to sit down. So finally he listened to her and he turned around to sit down and he noticed that behind him was Billy Graham. And so he sticks out his hands to Billy Graham to shake his hands and he goes, so good to meet you. He goes, you changed my life 10 years ago. Well, you look at that and you go... Well, the man may say that there was a change, but there was no fruit to show that a change had taken place. And so it's the same with Jesus and the fig tree. Uh, he's showing that Israel's condition is the same as this man on the airplane. So let's look at what happened in the temple in verses 15 through 19. Uh, Jesus leaves the fig tree and enters into Jerusalem, and specifically he goes into the temple. Now, you have to understand, this is the third temple, okay? There was, remember, uh, Solomon was the first one to build the temple. They, before that, kids, there was what? The tabernacle, right? It was a tent. But then God established a permanent building, a, a temple that Solomon built uh, for the Lord. But then that temple was destroyed, and so there came the temple that was built in the time of Haggai and others, the so-called Zerubbabel temple, which existed for probably about 500 years, but as the time got closer to the birth of Christ, that temple was, or yeah, that temple was in great disrepair. And so Herod the Great, who died in 4 BC, began to, a monumental building project to sort of renovate the temple and to make it glorious. And it was a magnificent structure, gigantic architectural design. The size and dimensions of Herod's temple was very impressive. And, and it was made up, as the temple always is, by God's design, with four parts. There's the, the court of the Gentiles, which is the outer part. And, and in the current temple, as we're reading about in our text today, it measured about 500 by 325 yards. Not feet, but yards. Now, as I sort of looked that up this week, that would be about 35 acres was the outer court. Does that give you an idea of the massiveness of, of this court? Well, and, and in this court, there were these columns. Kids, there were these pillars that were like 35 feet high. That would be, you know, three stories high. And they were so massive that, you know, we, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, that three men would have to put their hands together and hold hands in order to put their arms all the way around these pillars. They were, they were that massive. And so there was that outer court. But then there were three other courts, the court of women, where the women could worship, the court of Israel, where only circumcised men could worship, and then the holy of holies, where only the high priests could, could minister. And, and in this 35 acres of this outer court is where large groups of people would gather on the Passover. And that's what Jesus is coming into in our story today as we, we come in. And uh, Josephus, and sometimes Josephus, I think, 
sort of exaggerates a little bit from some of the things that, that I have read. But if he is accurate, he, he estimates that there were about 2 million people in that outer court. So you can imagine the hustle and the bustle that was taking place. And, that, and he also reports that in AD 66, that there were like 255,000 lambs that were offered in sacrifice on the Passover. And so you're, you're, we're talking a huge endeavor here. You know, this is not a Kirk of the Plains church. This is like a mega, mega, mega church, right? A huge. And so Jesus walks into this. And there's several things that are happening as Christ comes into the temple. First of all, there is the Jews who would be buying sacrifices to offer. The thing you have to remember is, is that Jews came from everywhere in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so there were Jews that were traveling hundreds of miles to come and to be there. And, and so the idea of bringing a lamb with you, they didn't have a stock truck like we would have. You could just put a lambs in the back and, and you get there just fine. But they would have to travel all that distance with their livestock driving them. And there was always the danger that they could be injured in some way. And if they were, then they would not be a suitable sacrifice. So it just makes more sense that you would just buy your sacrifice there. Plus, you would know that it was a lamb that was appropriate for the sacrifice because you're buying it in, in the temple. The problem with that is, is that the, the merchants could charge whatever they want. So you can only imagine the price gouging that was, was taking place. Now, I, I'm not a hot dog eater or anything like that, and I really don't go to a lot of baseball games, but, you know, so maybe my numbers are off here a little bit. But, you know, imagine if you, would, if you went to a baseball game and you wanted to buy a hot dog. It may cost you about 10 bucks. I don't know. The same hot dog at home you could cook for 50 cents, okay, but it cost you 10 bucks at a baseball game. So it could have been something sort of like that, where there was just this price gouging that, that was going on. So that was one dimension that was happening. The other thing that was happening in, in the temple at that time was is that there, the people had to pay the temple tax. If you remember from the Old Testament that God required each Jewish male 30 years or older to pay a half a shekel uh, in temple tax. And uh, just to give you an idea here again of just the massive amount of money that was paid to the temple, and of course the temple would require a lot of upkeep, so you would need this kind of money and stuff. But uh, it's, uh, as I was reading this week, it's recorded that when Jerusalem was ransacked in the middle of the first century, that uh, the amount of money that the Romans took from the temple was equivalent to, in today's currency, to $10 million. Okay, so you're talking about a massive amount of, of uh, traffic that's going through there. And so this temple tax had to be paid, but the problem is you couldn't just pay it with any money. You couldn't just bring your money and pay the temple tax. It had to be with the uh, uh, Tyrian coinage uh, that had to be paid because it didn't have an image on it. You see, Roman coinage had the image of the emperor, and so that was seen as idolatrous. And so for the merchants, they would have this uh, Tyrian coinage, which then you could exchange. Of course, there's just a little exchange rate that you have to pay for that, you know, as well. So the merchants could come out smelling pretty nice, you know, like sort of a gold mine for them. So anyway, it's, it's in that scenario that we read in verse 15, and, and he, that is Jesus, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple 
And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, it doesn't tell us in the text, okay, but I would suspect that this might have been happening sort of in a fairly small way in a corner of the court of Gentiles. I, I couldn't imagine that Jesus was doing this in the entire 35 acres, but at least in a portion he was doing this. And it says in verse 17, it continues on, it says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not written, or excuse me, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Of course, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56, 7 and from Jeremiah 7. And, and he's, he's helping us to see and reminding us that as, as Isaiah talks about, Isaiah is basically like the Old Testament version of the Gospel of John. It's just a wonderful presentation of the Gospel. And just showing how God, yes, while he did have a people in the Jews, that his intent all along was to draw in all the peoples of the nations. And you see that very clearly in Isaiah's book. But we were seeing here that, as he's saying this, he said that, so the purpose of this outer court of the temple, even from the time of Isaiah, was to be a house of prayer for the Gentiles. It was to be a place designated so that Gentiles could freely approach Israel's God to pray and to seek forgiveness. That God's intent was to draw in the nations. It was for those who were seeking the true faith, those who turned away from their false gods, that they would come at least to the outer courts of the temple and there they could engage in solemnity and, and reverence and the sense of the presence of God and bow their knee and to engage in prayer to the Heavenly Father. What a blessing! But instead, what the outer court was turned into was basically a massive flea market. A very busy flea market, if you would. And so uh, it was difficult for them to do that. Now kids, Let's just imagine this, okay? Let's pretend for a minute, okay, kids? Next Sunday, you come to church, and when you come to church, you're starting to cross the parking lot, and you realize, you know, on Sunday mornings, our shopping center, there's not a lot of cars, right? But next Sunday, you come in, the place is packed. Matter of fact, you have to park out there by the bank, or you have to park in the McDonald's parking lot, and you have to walk because there's so many people, and you're wondering, where are all these people coming from? And, and then you come in, and you realize that our sanctuary has been turned into a huge garage sale. Instead of chairs, there's tables everywhere. And there's electronics, and there's clothes, and there's household items, and there's toys, which that's sort of cool. But anyway, you come in, and there's just people going through all this stuff. And, and people are looking through everything. Now, kids, let me ask you, if that was true, all the chairs were torn down, how easy would it be to have church? Not very easy, would it? Okay? It wouldn't be easy at all, nor would it be something that would be honoring to God. And yet, that's what was sort of taking place on a much larger scale in, uh, what, in this account of Christ. Well, the holiness of Jesus takes over, and the true Lamb of God becomes the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And, and he just begins to turn over the tables and to stop the people that, that are walking through there, that are bringing the sacrifices. It sort of reminds me in Numbers chapter 25, if you remember the account where, where the Israelites, the men 
are taking Moabite women, which God had strictly forbidden taking foreign wives, because uh, what happens is they would take foreign wives and then they would begin to worship their false gods. And that's exactly the scenario of Numbers 25. And so Jesus is, or Jesus, excuse me, Moses was standing up and he was calling the people to repent, to turn away from this, and that God would bring his judgment upon them. And uh, while Moses is standing up and calling the people to repentance, there's this Israelite man with this Moabite woman that just walks in front of everybody and goes into a tent. And it's like, seriously, I'm telling you what God says and the judgment he's going to bring, and you just blatantly sin. And Phineas, not Phineas and Ferb, kids, Phineas, the priest in the Old Testament, takes a spear and he goes into the tent and he kills both the man and the woman because he had a zeal for the holiness of God. And Jesus, in much the same way, in a righteous indignation, he does the same with the merchants. Not put a sword through them, but, or a, a spear through them, uh, but instead he turns over the tables. You know, and I just think about this, and the times in which we live, brothers and sisters, and the Church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, and, and there's much of what we see here, I think, in the court of the Gentiles that's true of the modern church, where we've lost a sense of the holiness of God. We lost a sense of the worship of God and the dignity and the reverence, a sense of, of coming and being in the presence of God and of a place being given to the Word of God, a place to come to pray and to exalt the Lord. And instead, in too many churches, what we see is commercialization, and, and it's about entertainment, it's about noise, it's about cacophony, it's about a, a man pleasing man and trying to reach people on a human level rather than doing what God says. It's finding the inner strength that lies within ourselves and all about externals and not about the heart involvement of worship to God. And it seems to me that there's something here of which if Jesus were to come into the modern church in our time, that he would come probably with a whip and a cord of cords and drive out the entertainers and, and maybe the soft, cushy seats that we sit in and remind us afresh of what the purpose of worship is, that it is to come and to bow in the presence of the majesty and the glory of God. Amen? And do you see what Jesus says here, at least in part? He says that the court of the Gentiles was meant to be a house of prayer for the nations. There's a sense in which the Gentiles are, are being prevented um, by all of the merchandising and the activity from coming and beholding the sense of God's glory. It sort of reminds me of what we read in 1 Corinthians 14, where, where Paul is talking about worship. In 1 Corinthians 14, he's been talking about tongues and prophecy. He's been talking about love. And then he, he addresses worship in the context of that. And he says, if an unbeliever comes into your midst, and I'm summarizing here, he says, one of the things that is true about worship 
is that an unbeliever should come into the presence of God's people and worship and say, surely God is in this place. It ought not to be about tongues that they can't understand, but it ought to be a sense of prophecy, of declaring the word of God. And they come in and they say the presence of God is in this place. And yet these Gentiles were prevented from doing just that. Now, look at verses 20 through 26, and I want us to, to go back to the fig tree just a second. Now, it's interesting as I, as I uh, read various things on this, it was interesting how many uh, people actually made this a separate sermon because they didn't see the tie-in. But if you look at verse 20, it says, As they passed by in the morning, that would have been Tuesday morning, uh, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Anyway, then Jesus goes into this whole speech. Well, many people see that as only a, a thing to deal with prayer. But the reality is, Jesus ties it in with what's going on in, in the fig tree. And so Peter remembers what Jesus did. And he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And uh, Jesus uh, then through that teaches them a profound lesson. Uh, look back at verse 16. We read where Jesus said he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I think it's sometimes thought that the temple courts had become sort of a shortcut in the inner part of the city. It, if you look at a map, the temple sort of on the outside and you have the inner city over here. And so you could go in the other gates and get to the inner city of Jerusalem, or you could just make a quick shortcut through the temple courts and you could get to the inner city. And so some believe that what Jesus was doing was he was stopping these people who were, you know, coming in and out of the city through the temple courts, you know, with all their packages and stuff like that. But, but I would suggest to you that maybe what he was doing, and, and we don't know for certain because the text doesn't tell us, but that, you know, what he was really doing was is that he was stopping those who were offering the sacrifices that were taking place. Because in driving out the money changers and overturning the tables, the whole ritual of Passover cannot take place for some of these worshipers. That, that really it was a, a corrupted worship of God. And so Jesus is halting the hypocrisy and he's pronouncing a curse, the end for the very temple and its sacrifices. And you see that the Jews had come to put their faith and their trust in the temple and the sacrificial system even more than God himself. They weren't so concerned with what God thought as much as they were just keeping the rules of the temple or keeping the sacrificial system. And we don't have the time to look there this morning, but if you turn back to Jeremiah uh, 7 this afternoon, you'll see that that's really what was going on. That God said, you know, I'm the one that created the temple. I'm the one that gave you the temple and the sacrifices and all those things. But what I desire is a heart that will obey me. And that's really what Christ is saying. And he's saying, so all these things will come to an end. The days of the temple and the days of the sacrifices of lambs and of the blood that is slain on these altars are coming to an end. Because the true sacrifice is here. The Lamb of God is here to be slain. Now, 
I don't know if you recall or not, but in John chapter 2 is the account of Christ cleansing the temple. Only in that account, it talks about him using a whip in a little bit different detail. So there's a sense in which uh, Christ cleansed the temple twice. He did so at the beginning of his ministry and now at the very last week of his ministry. It's almost like bookends. And, and at that time, when Jesus destroyed the temple, he said to the religious leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it again. And of course, the religious leaders thought that Jesus was referring to the actual building when Christ was referring to himself. That he would die upon the cross and in three days he would be raised again from the dead. And even at Jesus' trial, the religious leaders brought up these words and they're like, yeah, he said he would destroy the temple in three days. That's an accusation that if it was Jesus' mission to destroy the temple and the cultures and the nation of Israel. And I think in a sense that was true because in AD 70, the Romans did come in and they took over Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple and the temple was never rebuilt. The, the sacrifices, the ritual of the temple worship uh, was all done away with. But part of that is because Jesus has come as the fulfillment of that. As we saw as we looked through the book of Hebrews, that he is the lamb. He is the priest. He is uh, the sacrifice that has been made. So all of this has pointed to him. And so here Jesus is by the fig tree that's now withered from its very root, showing that the judgment that God will bring is complete. And he is saying, Israel's days are finished. And the, two, and the true Israel is to emerge, the Israel which is Christ. And the Israel which is Christ's people, Jew and Gentile, who have faith in Jesus Christ, the Israel of God. And, and it seems as though Jesus is saying that the true religion is approaching God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we see as we look at this section that is uh, on prayer, where Jesus answers Peter, and he said, Have faith in God, verse 22. There are some surprising things, you see, that, that's going to happen in the life of these disciples, things that they're not going to understand, where Christ is going to be nailed to a tree and killed and buried, but he'll rise again from the dead, and he is calling them to have faith in God which he's saying to his disciples. And now, as though uh, two examples of the kind of fruit, then he begins to talk about the fruit that was missing in the temple. He says, but this is the fruit that is to be in your life as Christians as a result of faith in me. First one is that you should have the fruit of prayer. You should have the fruit of prayer. And he's talking about prayer with great faith, a prayer that, that moves mountains of taking things up and casting them into the sea. It is, if you would say, believing prayer, asking God, trusting that he will do those things. Now, Jesus, just to clarify here, this is not name it, claim it prayer, okay? This is not like, you know, Lord, give me a new Mercedes Benz, and boom, the Lord provides a Mercedes Benz. It's not that kind of prayer, okay? But if you, if you look at Verse 23, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass. You see, what he's saying is, is that what he says, what God says will come to pass. That we must believe the promises that God has given in his word. 
And so it is a sense where as Christians, it is a faith to pray to him, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the, the best prayer is, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. And so, yes, it's praying according to the will of God. He said to believe that, that every promise of God is true. But second of all, he says it is a fruit that has a forgiving heart as well. A willingness to forgive other people that, that otherwise would be an impediment to your prayers. It's, it's that kind of fruit that he wants to bring and to bear in the life of his people. Now, why is Jesus saying that? Why, why forgiveness? Well, because if you retain a stubborn heart, a, a bitter heart towards others, an unwillingness to forgive others, no matter what they've done to you, then you're just as phony as those who are in the court of the Gentiles. You, you're no better than they are. You see, a forgiven man is a forgiving man. Let me say that again. A forgiven man is a forgiving man. If you're not a forgiving man, the great question is, are you a forgiven man? For how can we say, blessed be God, my sins are forgiven, washed in the blood, and yet I will not be reconciled to my brother. Those things don't match. And Jesus says, that's the fruit of those who believe in me. And so this morning as I... As we come to the end of this, I, you know, God calls his visible church to hold fast to the Christian faith and, and to live into repentance. I mean, Jesus even came to the church, churches in, in Revelation chapter 3, right? And what did he say? You must repent of these sins. You know, there's a sense in which we come this morning and we say, you know, I'm not under the wrath of God because my sins have been forgiven. And that's true. But there is also a sense in which God continues to make his church more and more faithful to his word. And I believe that is the message that we should take away from the passage. We are reminded today that we need to be ever reforming. That doesn't mean that we were becoming something new or different. It means that we are ever looking for Jesus to cleanse us. To, to, to bring us into more and more pure expression of his church. That means that we become more and more sanctified in our obedience of his laws. That means that we worship God more and more in the ways of his commands. It means we teach and we preach his word more and more in truth and not in error. It means we become, as a church, a more faithful representation of Christ. Now, we'll not become this by just trying to be more faithful, but by looking to the one who is the true temple, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who endured the curse of God, the one who endured the curse of God for you and for me. And he calls us to come to him this morning and to say, Lord, search my heart. Try me. See if there be any anxious way in me. Look at the last two verses of Psalm 139, where David prays that. That is to be our prayer this morning. And as we see the hypocrisy in our hearts, as we see those things in our lives that don't match up 
to what it means to have faith in Christ, rather than saying, Lord, I need to do better, it is to come to the one who has become a curse so that we could have the righteousness of Christ. And it is uh, to him that we come and pray for the Spirit of God to work in us. It's so, it's so easy to gauge our Christianity on our activity, on whether we go to church, whether we come to Sunday school, whether we take of the Lord's Supper, whether we witness to our unsaved neighbors, whether we tie to the church. It's so easy to gauge the vitality of our Christian life on our activity, rather upon the work of the Holy Spirit to produce His fruit in us, a fruit that is love and joy peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's pray. We thank you so much so as we come to this morning for the word that you have given to us. To know that you are the righteous king before whom all will stand one day and give an account for their lives. Lord, a, a, a king, a ruler who stands before your church even today, Lord, to challenge us to look at our own hearts and to see are we following what we think is good enough or are we following you? I mean, I think of the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3 that, that thought that it was rich and it didn't need a thing. But Jesus said, you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus says to the church, you think you're doing well, but to the one who inspects you, you are found wanting. And so, Jesus, you graciously challenge that church to return to you. Lord, I pray for us this morning as well. That we would be a people that seeks to walk in holiness and righteousness. <clears throat> oh, Lord, that abhors the sin that just plagues us in our lives. And pray that this morning that we would turn to you, the one who not only endured the curse for us, but also in the one in whom we have been raised from the dead to newness of life. Oh, help us, oh God, to walk in your righteousness, to glory in who you are. We pray in your name. <coughs>